it went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook just. So in, in 1985, you joined uh, guys like uh, David Graham and, and Ben Hogan, who slayed the beast at Oakland Hills with a one shot win over Dave Barr, Dennis Watson, and T.C. Chen. Yeah, that's, that was a, a, you know, people that will compare your two opens. Well, they were totally different. The, the 78 Open was just my next step in where I was going. Um, and, and you know, if, if I could have stayed healthier, you know, who knows what would have happened after that. But I, I really struggled. Between the two Opens, I struggled physically. I had a couple operations, um, lost my way a little bit. Um, you know, my, my goal when I was a little kid, you know, you made putts on the putting green as a 15-year-old. This is to beat Arnold and Jack to win the U.S. Open. And, you know, that was what it was. And the uh, I had I had a, the USJ events were always to me the most important. I got beat in the finals of the junior one year. Uh, played okay in the amateur, but that was you know that was the defining event in your career at whatever level you were. So the open was always really important to me, and. I, I, you know, I struggled physically and, um, you know, so all of a sudden you, you reach your goal that you'd set in 78 and it's like, where do I go? And I struggled a little bit with that. Um, you know, that, that little extra just wasn't there. And then I had operations, I had an operation in 80, end of the 83 season on an elbow and, um, 84 was just basically a rehab year and I came and I worked really hard rehabbing and I came back in 85 and really felt good. I had a couple of good events on the West coast that really kind of, you know, got your confidence going again um, and played some really good golf that year. I had a lot of weird things happen to me where I'd make, you know, I made an 11 on the 71st hole at Honda after being like seven or eight under that day, making a big run on Sunday. I, I, I had a, a, a double or triple on the 72nd hole at Bay Hill after being five or six under on Sunday, going from, you know, 20th place to tie for third or something, and then give it all back in one hole kind of stuff. So I had, but I'd really played some good golf and I shot some really good scores on really hard golf courses. So, I went to Westchester's the week before, which I always thought was the perfect week before the U.S. Open because they always had the rough deep and it was uh, the greens were always firm and the little teeny greens, you had to really hit good shots. So I ended up missing the cut there. And instead of going home, I, I flew to, I was staying with some friends. We hung around on Saturday and then Saturday afternoon, I decided I'm going to Detroit. So I flew into Detroit that night. And got out there Sunday morning and had a nice little practice session in the morning. And then I, I sat down and figured out how can I best prepare for this week? And because I think so often at majors, you just lose energy, you lose uh, focus because you end up spending so much time on the golf course that's not productive. It takes so long to play practice rounds. You know, it's five, six hours to play a practice round. I said, I'm not going to do that. So Sunday night, I came back out and played nine holes like five o'clock in the evening. And doing this, I could chip and putt and really spend a lot of time in the important parts of trying to figure out a way to win an open. And I did the same thing Monday. I went out Monday morning early, played the back nine, 
left the golf course probably by nine thirty or ten o'clock. Went walked, you know, went to a movie, took a nap, came back at five o'clock and did the same thing. I did that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. I never was at the golf course from five, from ten o'clock until probably five o'clock any of those days. I went to movies. I took I rested. I just you know read, did stuff to get away from it, and I felt like. Teeing it up Thursday morning there, I was most prepared I've ever been for a tournament. I was, felt good about my golf swing. I had great confidence that I had a good plan. Um, I never, when I played the, at Oakland Hills in the PGA that David won, I had no idea how to play the golf course. And, and I had a horrible, I didn't have a good week, and I didn't like the place, and I came back in 85 and all of a sudden it's, you sort of figured it out. Uh, the way I practiced and prepared, I figured out how I wanted to play it. And I played a nice round on Thursday. Um, it had a, and then on Friday I shot, I shot 65 on Friday and played, I was playing with Johnny Miller and David Graham, the first two rounds and sitting in the getting done on Friday, J Johnny had my card and he, you know, we're the last two guys. So he said, God, you're playing great you know, you got a great chance to win this week, you know, just hold it together and do your thing. And you got a great chance to win. And on Saturday was one of the most miserable days you'd ever want to play. TC Chin had the lead. Um, it was absolutely miserable. It was about 50 degrees. It was rainy and drizzly and just, you know, the kind of day, the last thing you want to do is be out there. And it was one of those days you're just going to get soaked and that's how it was going to be. And, I ended up shooting 70 that day. TC shot 69, I think. And I think we're the only guys that were anywhere near par. Everybody, everybody else near the lead was 73, 74, 75, whatever. And it really sort of separated us from the rest of the field. So, I mean, I, I really felt good that, you know, I, I was doing what I wanted to do. And there's no reason you couldn't go out and play, you know, play well on Sunday and win the, win the Open. I think I think through the first three rounds, I was number one in fairways hit. I was number one in greens hit. I mean, I really was in complete control. And I can honestly tell you that didn't happen very often. Uh, you know, that you had one of those weeks where you just felt like you're in complete control of what you're doing. And then got out there on Sunday and it was a cold, damp day again. And I, I bogeyed the first hole. TC made a birdie. Some, all of a sudden, he's got a four-shot lead. And we're playing the fifth hole, and that's where he made his his infamous double hit. Ended up making it eight, and going to the six tee, I'm back tied for the lead of the open. And and he, you know, he basically let about six of us back in to have a chance to win. Um, and then he ended up. I had a one shot lead going to nine, and then I bogeyed nine, ten, eleven, um, and literally through the first 11 holes, I had not laid the club on it. I mean, I, you know, nothing solid. You're driving in the rough every hole. You've got no rhythm in your game because you're driving in the rough and you're just slashing it out every hole. And so I've made four bogeys in the first 11 holes on Sunday. And I think I made two bogeys the first 54 holes. Uh, so, you know, I wasn't, and then, I drove in the fairway bunker at 12 that's no longer even there and made a swing with a five iron come out of this fairway bunker that all of a sudden it felt great and it hit a really good nine iron third shot to about eight feet 
end up missing the putt, but it was back-to-back really good swings, really solid shots, and like, oh, okay, maybe we are going to be okay. And at the time, I may have been one back at that time, maybe tied, but I I don't know. Uh, But the next hole is a par three, and it was a five-iron shot. The 13th, I ended up, it was a back left pin. I had a really, really nice five ironed about 10 or 12 feet uh, to an area that it was really hard to get to. Ended up making that putt. And that got me either tied or lead the lead again. And from that point on, I hit, I've just, I hit nice shots at 14, two good made pars, 15 par, you know, two good shots, par 16, couple of good shots, pars. And I've, I've got a one shot lead going to 17. And the pin is in the back right of the 17th green. And, and if you remember the 17th green there, Bruce. Hard it, to get to that flag. It was a huge ridge that ran through the middle of the green from back to front that if you were left of that ridge, there was no way you could two-putt. It was impossible. Uh, and during one of these practice rounds I played, I'd spent an hour on that green one night putting from over there. And I knew I could hit it 50 yards to the right of the green and make a par, but I couldn't make a par if you're 30 feet left of the hole. So I, I ended up literally putting it in the right-hand bunker on purpose. Um, it was either going on the green on the right corner of the green or it was going in the bunker. And I ended up hitting a great bunker shot, hit it up to a tap-in distance. And, you know, that's bunker player. Well, that's, you the got me, bunker player. got me some, got me some votes. I mean, you know, there are times, you know, and that's what, People at home don't understand. There are times at a U.S. Open where the rougher on the greens is so much. You play for bunkers. Easier you know, out of the bunker. It's so much easier. And there are certain spots where the angles and stuff that you've got a better chance getting it up and out of a bunker than maybe having a 30-footer from the wrong side of the hole. So that was one of my strengths. I was able to figure out the best way to play the golf course for me at that time. And, and that was a, I mean, I hit the shot exactly like I wanted to. Then I teed off an 18 with a one shot lead and just absolutely mauled the drive down the middle of fairway. Hit just one of the better drives you'd ever want to hit under pressure to put it in play on the last hole and had uh, a four, four, five iron into the green. And I, all I can remember is that when David Graham at the PGA there, you you couldn't hit it over the 18th green. You could not do it. And you couldn't get it up and in. And David, I think, made double to let Crenshaw get in the playoff, if I'm not, if I'm he correct. Did. Yeah. Right. yeah, he, and, he drove it right on 18 and knocked it over the green. Yeah. So I, from the middle of the fairway, I not that you laid up, laid up, but I was making sure um, I'm going to be, I hit a club that possibly hit over the green. I mishit it a little bit and it came up just, just show the green, but in a position. Uh, and then the guys in front of me bogey. So I had now a two-shot lead. So I knew I could make five on the last hole to win. So I was being ultra conservative on the second shot. And from there, all I, all I do is just pitch it on the green and two-putt, which managed to do. And, uh, you know, you got another open. Yeah. Beautiful. Only, only player under par that week. I, that was the fr- I was the first guy ever to be under par at Oakland Hills in a major championship. That's changed since then, but you know that there's a little pride there that that was a hard golf course, and Boy. you know I ended up shooting seventy four the last day, but I think I made what I make. I made I made five bogeys that day, 
and and one birdie and and just got it around and uh you know i won the open making nine birdies for the week that's and finished under par so you know to me it was all about figuring out a way to make pars and you make a few birdies here and there and don't make any doubles you got a chance to win yeah yeah you know probably one of the more iconic golf shots is of that shot of uh of tc chen there uh uh, on the fifth, when he makes his two chip quad, what a lot of people probably aren't aware is that TC Chen actually made an albatross in the first round. It was the first albatross in U.S. Open history. You guys remember Ralph Landrum? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ralph Landrum was playing with TC Chen in the first round when he made that deuce, and Ralph was quoted as saying, "There were only a couple of fans standing there, and they didn't even clap because they were holding beers." <laughs> well it's you know he went on to win the la open and and ended up playing some nice golf back in uh his home country um we the senior open was uh up in the northern part of the detroit area this is probably 10 12 years ago uh, that he had turned 50 and he was playing there and one of his sons was caddying they went down and actually played Oakland Hills that week, and they you know wrote some nice articles about how cool that was for him to get back there and yeah. that sort of thing. Well, a, a great second U.S. Open victory in 1985. Uh, let's move on talk a little bit about Ryder Cup because you had a chance as a player to play on the 1985 team at the Belfry with uh, Jacqueline and Trevino as the captains, and uh, you know that was at an interesting time in Ryder Cup history, wasn't it? The, the Euros had just been brought in, you know, players from the continent. So you started seeing the the Sevies and the Faldos and some of the other sort of changed the the fortune of uh, of those teams. Eighty three was probably the the first time that really showed itself down at PGA National yeah. with 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 Jack as captain, where the U.S. just snuck out a victory with Lanny kind of stiffing one at the last. But but from then on, it was a different game, wasn't it? Yeah, they, you know, one is, it's always an honor to represent your country. And uh, when they play the national anthem and they announce you represent the United States, that first tee shot's not a very easy one. Um, but I think at that point in time, the Euro team had Seve, had Langer, had Woozy, Faldo, and Lyle. They are all five were ranked. All five of those guys were in the top ten of of the rankings. Then I mean, these guys were five of the best ten players in the world. And what Jacqueline did a masterful job of doing. He played every one of those guys every match. They all played five matches, and he would have some guys that back in that era uh, where our team was much deeper. Their top five were probably better than our top five, or at least equal. And and they would hide their their guys at the lower end. Uh, some of them might not play until the singles match on Sunday, uh, which the U.S. never felt. I mean, if you played on a, a Ryder Cup team, we always felt like you deserved to play each day. You know, you'd play at least three matches, and and that's how it's been pretty much through the the whole the whole course of it. But that was the start. That was the event. That wasn't even on TV back in the America. Um, that was the, the Ryder Cup that really changed the Ryder Cup. And uh, we didn't play very well. We had a really good team. I mean, I think 10 of our 12 players ended up being major champions. Um, it was a team that Nicholas and Watson didn't make, uh, you know, which that 
tells you a little bit about you know how good this team was. It was a team that I think that was a year that it was right off the point list. The top 12 guys off the point list were the guys that made the team. I don't think they were Captain captain's Mike. picks. Um, so it was, it was really, really a good team. Um, we didn't play very well. I know I played poorly. Um, I got beat. I lost three matches, every one of them close, you know, all of them going down to the end. Um, lost the 18th hole to lose to Sam Torrance one up. Uh, in the singles, and that was the point that won the won the Ryder Cup for the Euros. So to st- stand on that last green with them celebrating is not a really good feeling, and it, it still makes me mad as can be that, you, you know, go. wish you could have played a little bit better. You had to be happy for Steve Stricker this year then. Oh, it was this year was great. It's, I mean, if you look back at the last probably 10 or 12 Ryder Cups, it's it's the first time our team has really played well. Um, and I think a lot of it was scheduling. A lot of it was, uh, and obviously Steve did a wonderful job, but we had a really good team. I mean, when the worst player on your team is the 20th ranked player in the world, you've got a pretty good team. Um, and they all were playing well. I mean, it was a beautiful situation where they all were playing well. And this was the first Ryder Cup in a few years that our guys had time off before it. Uh, in the past, you'd finish up playing like – when Tiger won the Tour Championship a couple of years ago, they got on a plane that night and went to Paris. So you're playing, you've, you're coming out of, our whole team is coming out of playing those four or five weeks in a row of, of the FedEx Cup. It's 90 degrees in, in Atlanta. You get on a plane and you go to Paris. Everybody's completely worn out. They're completely tired. And now you go out and you get out there and it's 50 degrees. There was no, you, you got no chance. And this is the first time in a lot of years that our guys actually had time off beforehand. They came in rested, they came in prepared, and they really played great. And Bruce, these young guys can be around for a while. They can be together as a team for a few years, can't they? Yeah, they got a, uh, they got a, as we mentioned earlier today, we got some really, uh, really great young players that are out on the tour now. Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me, one in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pan and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? Yeah, that was, you know, it wasn't easy. There were two or three guys Steve left off the team that were playing well that, you know, under normal circumstances probably would have made it. But we had so many of those guys playing great. It was nice to see. Uh, speaking of representing your country, you had the opportunity also to represent the U.S. in the 1978 World Cup that was in Hawaii. You teamed with John Mahaffey and uh, and uh, not only won the team event, but uh, uh, John and you were one, two in the individual competition as well. Yeah, we we really played well um, the whole week. It was that'd be nasty. You know that that'd be nasty and say who you beat. 
Well, you know, there. You know, I think I think basically the the way the that team was picked, it was the U.S. Open and the PGA Champion during that time, and it was you know it was fun to go over there to have it at Princeville in in you know obviously Hawaii. You weren't going to Sri Lanka or you know some place that. Yeah you had no control over what you're doing. And John and I were both playing well. And, um, one by 10, the last hole. Well, it was not close. No, yeah. I mean, it wasn't close. very close. We, we played great. And the last hole was a par five that I tried to knock it on the green and two to, to be able to tie John. And I ended up making a bogey and he ended up beating me by either one or two. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, but we played great all week. And, um, you know, it's, you know, when they start arguing about golf in the Olympics, well, we've had that with the world cup for years and years and years. And, um, you know, it's a great honor for these guys to play in the Olympics now, but, you know, we've, we've had this world cup. It, it'd be nice to get the world cup back to the level that it was back yeah, then. Was a, uh, it's, it's kind of got lost in the shuffle. It was a, little a big bit. tournament really, wasn't it? It was yeah. a big deal. That matter of fact, that year, uh, met Greg Norman for the first time. Um, if Dev, if, if you remember, um, we stayed in condos and you took a bus back and forth to the golf course, like a, like a little shuttle bus. And Susan came back. So I met this really nice guy today. I don't know what he is. You know, those blonde guys from Australia. I think he's caddying <laughs> for somebody. I don't, <laughs> I don't know who he's. Oh, it was Norman. You know, he was he was on this bus in a t-shirt and jean, cut off jeans and barefoot, coming from the beach or yeah, something. She did. She thought he was some caddy. Yeah, he did okay yeah, for yeah, himself. He did. He did. Uh, Bruce had an opportunity to play in this <laughs> event back in 1970 with uh, Mr. David Graham. That's right. We did. Yeah. We, we that was our that was our sort of. Uh, I think that's why the the Americans won so big back in. 78 was because David and I beat the Americans and the Argentinians in in uh, in South America. So that was that was a lot of fun. And like like Andy said, you know, the World Cup in those days was was really a big tournament. I mean, we never got paid we never got paid any money, but uh, it was uh, quite an honor to represent you. You think? Well, and and the neatest thing is that that really helped. You know, you talk about growing the game. That really did help. Um, grow the game. There's, there were some a, a, a big family of brothers that represented Yugoslavia or something. There, they were the only guys in the country. They had a like a six hole golf course that they mowed and took care of, and they played. And uh, one of the days, John and I came out, and, you know, went to the range, and there was a spot in between us, and this. One of the one of these brothers was hitting balls, and we started hitting balls. And the next thing you know, he's on his hands and knees picking up his balls. And I said, "What's what's the deal?" He said, "Oh no, I'm not good enough to hit balls here." Well, these guys, one of them broke a hundred. One of the rounds at Princeville is the first time any of them had broken a hundred in this tournament, uh, in the in the World Cup, and. They had the biggest celebration. They had the greatest parties all week. It was incredible just because of what they'd accomplished. And, you know, when you look at that kind of joy for just getting to a point where you can break 100 really shows how the game has come over the – and that 
that exposed a lot of these countries to golf for the first time. Yeah. I remember uh, Bruce David Graham telling us uh, when you guys flew down to uh, Buenos Aires uh, for the 1970 World Cup, he said, I flew down in coach and I flew back in the front row, as Bob Euchre would say. <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, let's move away from golf now and and talk about life after the tour. Of course, uh, we mentioned earlier that you played uh, played a little bit on the senior tour, um, and I don't know uh, uh, if uh, health wise. You were strong enough to have a real long, uh, real successful career on the senior tour. Well, I really, I never played the senior tour like you're supposed to. Um, I was doing a lot of TV when I turned 50 and I wasn't going to give the television part up. Uh, so there are some of those years where I do 20, 25 television events and still try to play 20 events playing golf and probably didn't do do either one of them very well. <laughs> and, but, um, you know, I got to the point where I wasn't exempt, um, for the senior tour. So I had to get sponsor exemptions so that uh, I was great. The sponsors took nice care of me, but once you got there, you, you worked really hard that week. You had to do extra pro-ams and extra events. And, uh, it just finally, I just finally wore down. I, I didn't play very well. So, uh, you know, had some, some a lot of fun uh, playing with guys, uh, particularly the legends. Had a, a nice run at the legends. Won that six times, with, two with with Colbert and four times with Watson. And uh, that was always a lot of fun. And you know, it's 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 fun being out there trying to compete. But when you you're you're so busy doing other things that you know you don't it, you're not prepared well enough. If if golf is your fourth or fifth priority out there you're going to get your butt kicked because there are a lot of those guys that's their number one priority and they're really going after it. Yeah. You did, however, win $1,032 in this year's American family insurance championship. Oh yeah. That was the dumbest thing I ever did without doubt. I had, I have not, I had not played in a golf tournament in 10 years and got talked into by the American family people here in town that it'd be a great idea if you played. Um, we usually do at that event, one of those Saturday afternoon celebrity deals where Brett Favre would come and, and Derek Jeter and guys like that. We'd play, uh, an exhibition kind of thing afterwards. Uh, and we didn't do that because of COVID this year. So we decided, well, why don't you go ahead and play? Well, I ended up that I tried to practice for it and hurt my back and I was terrible and it was a mess. And, um, uh, but it was you know, it was fun to try to play, and uh, Steve appreciated the fact that it tried at least. Yeah, so, d- did Sadie come out on the 18th green again and greet you? And she, she, she uh, my granddaughter did actually was waiting there. <laughs> she followed around every day, so that was nice. Yeah. So, so you're 51, 52 years old. You're looking for something to do with the rest of your life, and uh, next thing you know, you're you're joining ESPN as an on course reporter. Yeah, I was lucky enough that you know guys like Devlin quit and went to went to NBC and you know bigger places that opened up some spots. I started. Um, I guess I guess they asked me if if I'd be interested a couple of years before I accepted. I turned down a ninety and turned it down at the end of the ninety one season. I had a, some I had I was going through a period of time where I had an operation every year and. 
I, I wanted to rehab and try to come back and see if I could play. And I finally decided, why don't I just do it one of these years? And I, I decided at the end of the 92 season, I'd, I would work full time with them, 93, and just take a year off of playing golf and see if my body could heal up a little bit. And if I didn't like TV, I could go back and play. I still had three or four years left on my exemption. And I liked it. Um, you know, I worked with some great people, um, learned an awful lot and, and enjoyed it. And, um, you know, it's been 30 years, uh, still not knowing what I'm doing, but it's been great. It's been great people. And, um, believe it or not, they just inked me for another two years. So I've got another two years. I can go out there and stumble around and bother people. So that's good. Tell us about your uh, tell us about your white placards that uh, that you're so well known for when you do. Oh, that well, we used to we used to have some fun um, at the open, particularly Van Pelt and I. We we uh, you know trying to pick the winner, and uh, you know basically we go back through uh, you know no amateur has won since you know, 1913 or whatever, 1927 or whatever year it was. So any amateur in the field wouldn't have a chance. So we'd heave that card away. Then the next one was uh, we'd go through a series of six or seven different things from no one over the age of 46, no one uh, who had won the week before. No, you know, you'd come back and you'd end up with about 20 guys. And then the kind of the, the number, the thing that we would use would be if you had to be in the top 10 in greens hit or in the, the top, the top, what was the top, maybe the top 15 greens hit and the top 15 putting. Cause that was a combination that was really important at the open. And we'd end up getting down to like three or four guys and we'd make a pick and every once in a while, that guy would win, you know, which would be really cool. So we, we had a lot of fun with it. We made complete fools of ourselves. It was a Dr. North. I'd show up in a white lab coat and, you know, we, we do some really dumb things, but it, it, uh, it was fun. And working with Van Pelt always makes it really very interesting. Everybody loved you doing that too. So you better bring it back again, Andy. Well, you know, it, if you don't, I don't know. We, I don't think that doing that at Augusta would be really a good idea. <laughs> no, probably not a good idea. At Augusta, no, no. But, uh, but, you know, that was fun. And we did it for a bunch of years. And, um, you know, having the chance to do TV at the U.S. Open was special. And that meant it all, that always meant a lot to me. Yeah. Well, both of you have, a, have had a chance to do a lot of this uh, television coverage of, of golf. What would you two say are some of the bigger changes? What, what What's different today covering golf than it would have been back uh, when you first got started? Well, at Dev, I definitely, when we first started doing golf, we'd do two hours on Saturday and two hours on Sunday. It was like a vacation. Now you right. show up and you do. Instead of being there all day. Yeah. Now it's now it's 12 hours, 13 hours, or 14 hours on air. This, year at the, this last year at the PGA, we were on air from first shot to last shot. So, I mean, that's 6.45 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night or whatever, you know, and that's, that's the difference is that it's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy hours, but, uh, you know, it's still fun to go do. And yeah, Technology-wise, uh, it's changed dramatically, too, from the early days. From my standpoint, anyhow, you know, with, uh, with all of the 
the, the replays and the following the golf ball in flight and that sort of stuff. It's, uh, it's, I think it's much more interesting to watch. Well, I think, I think you could almost watch – somebody told me a really good uh, way to judge a television program. If you could turn the sound off and you still understood what was going on, you know, with great graphics – uh, you know, replays, slow-mos, that kind of stuff. Uh, if you didn't have someone telling you what was going on, then it's probably a pretty good broadcast. Um, there you go. And then if you can add some announcers that actually might add what something to it, that, yeah, that might be good. <laughs> so so did you, uh, did you get uh, counseled before you started this by your director or your... Well, you know, I think that's interesting. There's no training at all. The last thing I thought I'd ever do was would do TV. Um, and you know that uh, you learn by making mistakes. There's no book. No one tells you, you know, here's your stuff. Go out there and talk when we ask yeah. you to talk. Well, you don't have any idea, you know, from doing interviews, do uh, trophy presentations to uh, stay Walking up and climbing up on TV towers, you've got a good view to see. They don't like that at all. I mean, I used to get one, either my producer or, or, or director, who you knew very well, um, one of them would be waiting for me as I came back to the compound off almost every single day to chew me out for something I did. You know, Ben, oh, I, never, I didn't know that. Oh, okay, don't do it again. That was how you learned, you know. So, yeah. um, you know, I think there's a real knack uh, once you – uh, a real talent to do TVs, to be able to concentrate on what you're doing and still hear all this stuff in your ear uh, where they're talking to you and, and you still can be in the middle of a thought and get that thought out while they're yelling and screaming at you in your ear. Uh, that That is probably the most difficult thing to learn. Absolutely. The hardest part of it is that. And not answering yourself or answering the producer. Right. Or, yes. <laughs> no, I told... <laughs> I told Paul Azinger the other day when we talked with him about it. Uh, he's, you know, we got talking about you know producers and directors, and uh, you'll remember a guy by the name of Don Olmeyer, who yes. uh, who who came over from uh, from uh, ABC and worked with NBC when I was there, and he pulled me aside and he said, "I'm going to give you one piece of advice. Just remember that what you see on your monitor, the people see in their living room. So talk about something different." Yep. Yep. Absolutely. He was the, he was the godfather of so many Monday night football, so many things. Um, he, he came out and did the skins game a couple of times with us, uh, when somebody couldn't do it or, you know, he'd, he'd come in for the bullpen cause his, his company produced that for years and years and years. We opened up, he hadn't done this for a bunch of years and he came in, we opened up with a 23 minute highlight package one at one of these events he got he, he got all fired up about wanting to show all these shots normally your a highlight package at the beginning of the show is maybe two minutes or three two minutes, minutes. Yeah. yeah 23 minutes we're we're a, an eighth of the way done with the show we haven't shown a real shot yet <laughs> <laughs> or he was a, a famous chain smoker and there'd be you know be nine no smoking signs in the truck and he just it didn't matter he you know he'd He'd go through two packs during a show inside the truck. So he was something else. What were some of the greatest moments you remember witnessing as a broadcaster on the golf course? I think, I think to me, I was so fortunate that 
I was in my early years of doing TV when Tiger came along. And, uh, you know, I was with him and did the interview after he won his first tournament at, at Las Vegas in 96. Um, I, I probably have had the the honor of walking down the 72nd hole with him at maybe 20 of his wins over the years, a couple of British Opens, uh, you know, stuff that's really been cool. And some of the shots that he's hit, um, one of the most famous shots was the 72nd hole, of the Canadian Open, where he hit it to a back right hole location over water out of a fairway bunker to like four feet to win the Canadian Open. Um, a shot that no one else in their right mind would ever have tried. Correct. <laughs> you know, I mean, just uh, he's done so many amazing things. It's been fun to be around him and and to uh, gain his trust as a broadcaster. I think that was something that I'm proud of, that he, he trusted me and I think respected me because he knew that I worked hard at what I was trying to do. Question yeah. for you. How good is your memory? That shot he hit at uh, Glen Abbey on the 18th hole, was with, mm -hmm. with what club? It was 201 yards, six iron, I there believe. There you go. You're oh, absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was, an, and the ball, the ball never looked like it was going to be on the green. It started out to the right of the green, and he drew, drew it in to literally eight feet yeah, left of the like ed, water's the edge. Yeah, it, was it was an amazing shot, shot, absolutely amazing shot. No, it's been, you know, I think that's the coolest thing that Bruce and I have both been able to do, being involved in TV. You're still involved in your the game you love. You're involved with a lot of your friends. Um, you know, you're, you're, you've been able to uh, work into another generation or even two now that, you know, you you see these guys that are wonderful players that – you've been involved with them and, and, and gotten to see some of the best golf ever played. Of course, you got in this game early enough at a professional level to see the likes of Lee Trevino, Jack Nicholas. But if you think about the greatest players you've seen, uh, who, who, who stands out in your mind as the greatest ball striker? Well, I've guys that I've, I've been able to, I've, I've been really lucky that um, I actually played golf with Gene Sarazen. I actually played golf with Bobby Locke. I actually played some golf with Byron Nelson. Um, the only one of those great, great players that I didn't get a chance to play golf with was Ben Hogan. Uh, but you start thinking about Gene Sarazen, who was born in 1900 or whatever he was, through Tiger and Phil and Ricky and you know Jordan Spieth and this group of guys now, the the depth and the the length of people that you've seen play this game is absolutely amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. been a good trip, Andy. Been a good trip. Oh, we've kept yeah. we've kept, kept fooling them, Devil. We kept fooling them. <laughs> and look at you now. Yeah, you're you're right. doing and, this, uh, right? You know, the one thing uh, Mike Mike talked me into doing this, uh, and uh, the the whole idea, and I think I mentioned it to you before, you know, a while back when we first spoke. One of the golf organizations has to archive all of this stuff that we're doing with you guys because, uh, you know. Oh, the history is amazing. Yeah, the, the, 
and you guys have been so wonderful to us. You you know, you talk about all the intricate details of, you know, when you were kids and growing up and all the problems, you know, this and that. It's been a it's been a uh, it's been a great ride doing this and uh I know I'd like to thank you for being with well, us. It's today. fun it's it's fun doing it with friends. Yeah. You know, that's the key. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, we'll touch on a couple of other things if we can, only because of uh, your your love of Wisconsin as a Wisconsin native. Uh, uh, I know you were honored as the Vince Lombardi Award of Excellence honoree in, in 2013. That's an event when I lived in Milwaukee. I used to go to that banquet every year and see all the greats. Uh, of course, Bart Starr was one of the honorees, Roger Staubach, Don Shula, quite a few guys over the years. Uh, which was a great honor for you. You were uh, inducted into the Wisconsin Athletic Hall of Fame in 1998, along with uh, many, many other honors. One of the things that strikes me, Andy, that you must be proud of, because I'm sure uh, you've had a hand in this over the years, and that's just how Wisconsin is emerging as as sort of the next golf mecca. Well, I think, you know, it's something you're really proud of, that we've had um, a lot of, really, really wonderful players come through here. We've we've got some terrific golf courses, and we've had great golf courses even before the Kohlers and the, uh, the some of these uh, Sand Valley and some of the new newer places have been built. Uh, it's always been a, a, a great place to come play golf, great condition golf courses, very, very reasonably priced. And, and it's sort of that way through Minnesota, Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin. It's, there's some really amazing golf up here. Uh, but I think the neatest thing is to see, you know, the junior clinics and the things that we all did, you know, a million years ago. Uh, that's where I met Steve Stricker and Jerry Kelly for the first time. There were a couple of 12-year-olds at some clinic I was doing. And they both talk about, you know, to be able to see somebody that has success and then, you know, that they knew as kids that they could do this. You know, they could go play golf and be and be good at it and, and have a chance to win. Uh, I think that probably means as much to me as anything, is that there's a really a great group of younger players that have come through here that, you know, hopefully you've had some some effect on. You've also been involved with the philanthropic work uh, through Andy North and Friends. Your efforts include a golf classic, which raises funds for the Carboni Cancer Center at the University of Wisconsin. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think, you know, all of us are affected by cancer. Uh, Susan and I both lost parents to cancer. We both had our own sh- our own issues with cancer. Um, it was a way for us to do something that we really felt was important. And uh, we've done it now for about 13, 14 years. We've had multiple kinds of events. We had a big golf event for years, and uh, we've branched out to do some smaller events around the country. Uh, and we've been out lucky to raise uh, a ton of money. We've probably raised about $15 million over that period of time. And the thing that I think is we're most proud of is that we're, we're coming up with some things here that are unbelievable from a cancer cure standpoint and, and moving forward. And uh, so some of the, one of the key things when you raise this money is that every bit that we raise goes right to research um, that every single reacher, researcher needs 50 grand, 75 grand, 100 grand to start a pilot project of some kind. And to see the money you've given them turn into grants of $5 million, $10 million down the road is pretty amazing. If uh, For every dollar that we're able to raise here at Carbone, 
between 12 and $15 end up being uh, equated for every dollar you've raised. So if you, know, if you can raise $10 million, that might equate to $100 million down the road or $120 million road with all the grant money that comes with this stuff. So uh, we're really proud. We feel like we're making a difference in the community, and that's, that, you know, that's what it's all about. Yeah, good stuff. I know there's a just a couple other items that Bruce and I always like to finish up with. One is a question that uh, Bruce has heard before, but uh, if you're 20 years old and you know what you know now, what would you have done differently? Well, um, we, we'd have made a whole bunch more cash than we did in our time. I can tell you that, right, Bruce? <laughs> no, I think I, I think that you know, we all are lucky to do what we do. Every every generation's a little bit different, um, but if the 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 good ones, the great ones, probably could equate from one generation to the next. And uh, you know, it'd have been fun to be at your best to go out here and try to try to beat some of these kids today. That had been the fun part. Yeah. How would you like to be remembered as a golfer? Oh, I don't know. Um, you know. There's a lot of people that don't know I even play golf. You know, they they see the philanthropy, they see the ESPN stuff. You walk through an airport and they don't yell out, you know, there's the two time US Open, there's down on, down on, there's the ESPN yeah. guy, you know. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I would have loved to have had a better career. I would have loved to have been healthier. But at the same time, you know, you did what you could do and you played hard and you, you gave it your best and that's all you can do. We'll leave it right there. Bruce Devlin, uh, what a pleasure to have this guy with us today. Yeah, we appreciate it, Andy. Uh, Anytime guys, you've, uh, you've been great. Good luck cutting this up into something that's usable. <laughs> we're we're going to cut it up into probably three pieces that are going to be usable. Yeah, you really made it a challenge to edit this into a nice, beautiful oh. ending. Yeah. <laughs> well, we really appreciate it, guys. Okay, all right. Thanks. Good luck. Great having you. Thanks. You got it. See you guys later. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway. It went smack down the fairway Then it started to slice just a smidge off line It headed for two, but it bounced off nine My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay Yes, it went straight down the middle Quite a way